Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way, motherfucker. The devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Fall to your knees. Devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Motherfucker, he's on his way. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. The show contains graphic language and depictions of violence. It may not be suitable for all audiences. We say fuck a lot. Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. It's spooky season. Boo. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. Are you excited? We are weeks away from Halloween. We are well into October. Autumn is here. Loving it. I can't wait. You can't? You love this time of year. I know. I've been seeing all the little pumpkin patches popping up. A lot of our local churches will have a little pumpkin patch. Being seeing the families out there picking their pumpkins, doing their little fall photos. I love it. You know, it seems like the kids are full of wonder and merriment this time of year. Do you, you remember as a kid, like, making the big leaf pile and running and jumping in it? Uh, do I? It was like the best. Yeah, it was. Do kids do that today? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they took the time to rake up the leaves. You know, I don't know about the quality of said leaves nowadays, you know, given the climate and, and such. Given the climate. <laughs> Are these things you would think about when you think about a leaf pile? No, probably not. Okay. No, actually, I was thinking about how I would love to run and, ju- and jump in these leaves, and they were all just like decayed, rotting leaves, and there would always be like the really wet ones at the bottom of the pile, and you just get all sorts of weird, nasty shit on your clothes, and probably like some dead bugs in there and stuff yeah the the pile can get pretty gross pretty quick but uh you know we were kids we didn't care we were like just fuck it throw caution to the wind jump in the big pile of leaves so um what you had a little something to talk about before we get into our story so i guess we can take this with a grain of salt but there is a team of specialists who investigate cold cases dylan that say they've identified the zodiac killer wow one of america's most prolific serial killers who terrorized communities in San Francisco, California in the late 1960s with a series of unsolvable riddles and brutal murders. The Case Breakers is a team of 40 former law enforcement investigators, some journalists, and some military intelligence officers. And they've tackled other famous mysteries like the D.B. Cooper hijacking case. 
Oh, yeah, that's a very strange story. The disappearance of former labor leader Jimmy Hoffa and then a few other unsolved cases. And the group believes the killer is responsible for slaying hundreds of miles away, but those murders have never been linked to him. So the Zodiac Killer has been connected to five murders that occurred in 1968 and 69 in, as I mentioned, the San Francisco area. Zodiac, unlike a lot of serial killers, though, taunted authorities with these ciphers that he would send into newspapers and to law enforcement. Yeah, and teams of people have been working on these ciphers since back in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah, for decades, uh, folks have poured over these uh, ciphers, trying to solve them. The slayings have spawned books, movies, documentaries. Of course, all of us true crime nuts, us amateurs and professional sleuths, have uh, looked over this case, and we've all tried to unmask the killer, right? Yeah, and it's amazing that they think they uh, possibly have figured out who it was. Well, the cold, the case breakers, as they're calling themselves, are saying that the Zodiac Killer is a man named Gary Post, and he passed away in 2018. They, uh, 2018, I'm sorry, the uh, team has dug into some forensic evidence and photos from the man's darkroom, and one image features scars on the forehead of Post that match scars on the sketch of the Zodiac Killer. Ooh. Yeah. Some other clues include deciphering letters sent by the Zodiac that revealed him to be the killer. And this is coming from a former counterintelligence uh, officer with the Army who works on cold cases and believes that Gary's full name is in these anagrams. Wow. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I think that's one. You know, that <clears throat> that story's been... Uh gone over many a time i guess i'll say and to a degree after a while i'm just like okay zodiac we get it you know what i mean but i will say that um he truly terrorized and whoever he is truly terrorized an entire region i mean for months and months and yeah absolutely i mean everybody was talking about it everybody was scared they were changing their lifestyle, you know, what they did well, and didn't do. Well, he definitely seemed to prey upon uh, lovers, couples in like a lover's lane type of situation, whether it was a couple having a picnic at a lake or possibly in like a lover's lane setting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, terrifying. Now, what we know about Post, he was an Air Force veteran and he received some medical checkups for a gun incident at a hospital that was located 15 minutes away from one of the murder scenes. He wore a wristwatch that had, uh, I can't talk today. I had a puppy. Uh, It had paint splatter on it. And they thought that uh, that could have been, I guess it was collected at a murder scene. And they thought it could have been worn by the killer, this paint splattered watch. And it turns out that he actually painted homes for more than 40 years. They also found heel prints from the crime scene, a military style boot, which matched some of the same ones that were found at the Zodiac crime scenes and the type that Post was known to wear. Well, I mean, that seems like some fairly strong uh, circumstantial evidence. Yeah, I mean, we'll see about this. Of course, nothing has been absolutely confirmed, and we've had many of these, um, I guess, ideas, theories move forward. Oh, we think we found who this person was, and then, you know, nothing. It kind of reminds me of, like, the Jack the Ripper case. Yeah. There's always a theory, always a new suspect, 
and people claiming that they have evidence to support this is, you know, this is who Jack the Ripper was. And then we find out that it was maybe fabricated or not exactly accurate information. So I, I don't know if we'll ever find out who the real Zodiac killer was. Well, <clears throat> when you have these uh, very sensationalized stories that just go on for decades and, and unsolved, it just it leaves a lot of room for people's imagination and speculation. Exactly. Right? Baby. Yeah. So as we are moving into the month of October, spooky season, we have surpassed 200 episodes, which is very exciting for us. I wanted to dig up a very grisly, ghastly type of case for the Halloween season, Dylan. And I think I have managed to hit the nail on the head with this one. <sighs> oh, my God. This case is insane. That's Just all I'm going to say. Just a warning. I know we give a warning at the beginning of the episode, graphic depictions of violence. But this week's case, folks, definitely contains graphic depictions of rape, kidnapping, torture, and murder. So if you are disturbed by these things, you may want to skip this episode. And if you have small ones in the car, this might be best listened to later when you have your earbuds and you're taking a long hot bath or something, right? Yeah, when you're in the gym or at work and just staring around at people. Yeah, maybe blast this from your cubicle. Yeah, and just looking at them intently while you listen to this tale of murder. So, Dylan, I also want to apologize a little bit because the last few episodes, I feel like my voice sounds absolutely horrible. I've had the worst allergies the last, like, month or so, and I feel like my voice is very frazzled. And right now I'm sort of uh, battling a stuffy kind of head cold thing. And so I definitely feel like I sound a little frazzled, so bear with me with my little voice, okay? That's just how you sound. Is Dumb. It? it is. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, see, I'm dealing with the same thing. I don't think people realize what goes on behind the scenes or how we sit here and itch and snot and, and choke. They're, the entire, oh, what? Ooh, oh. Wow. Are you just, like, letting them know that our <laughs> podcasting studio is, like, just a haven for every allergen in the house? It's our entire house. It's a dusty old house. All right, let's do it. Few killers are so depraved, they inspire a horror movie. When a self-proclaimed preacher is found to be an exceptional monster in a northern Philadelphia neighborhood, the community, then nation, is stunned. His story will heavily influence serial killer Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, leaving behind a disturbing legacy. Oh my God. Anyone who inspires anything about Buffalo Bill has got to be scary. Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation or links that Ed Gein has inspired Buffalo Bill. But once we get into the story, you're going to see how they borrowed from this real-life horror story to create Silence of the Lambs' Buffalo Bill. Oh, my God. Okay. I've got my lotion. Oh, gosh. It puts it on the skin. It's on my skin. Gary Michael Heidnick was born November 22, 1943, to Michael and Ellen. Michael was a machinist and Ellen a beautician in Eastlake, Ohio. A year later, a brother named Terry was born just before the couple called it quits in 1946. Initially, young Gary and Terry went to live with their mother for the first four years after the divorce. Ellen was an alcoholic who struggled with mental illness. Gary and Terry were then sent to live with Michael and his new wife, Dorothea. Michael was also an alcoholic who frequently, emotionally, and physically abused his sons. My God. From an early age, Gary was a bedwetter. And as we know, 
Bedwetting can create a lot of undue stress on parents and children. It can lead to anxiety and influence their willingness to create social relationships. Most parents would avoid talking about the child's bedwetting in front of others as, you know, it's being sensitive to the child's feelings. And you're trying to help them through this difficulty. Well, yeah, a lot can come from that. Uh, feelings of shame, you know, anger. Why don't you get it? You know, you're, you're old enough. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, kids hiding the fact that they've wet the bed. So yeah, there's just a lot that goes into that, a lot of feelings. Michael was not this father. He humiliated his son by forcing the boy to hang soiled sheets from his second-story bedroom window, which faced the street. See, you see something like that in movies. Yeah, I've seen that multiple times, actually, in different movies. And uh, just would be like, oh, my God, I would be so devastated if I was that poor kid because there's this pissy sheet hanging out the window for everybody to see. Could you imagine? No. Horrifying. Pissy sheets are no good. Once, relatives recalled Michael severely beating Gary with a wooden toy plane after a bedwetting, a bedwetting incident. So he was not a tolerable father. Like, he was not putting up with this at all. And I'm sure that humiliation and abuse only leads to more anxiety, which is probably going to lead to young Gary peeing the bed even more, right? Well, I would think. Certainly not the environment that's going to, whatever issue he's having, this is not going to make it better. And, and I think that some people's thought is if I embarrass them or humiliate them, which I don't you know, know why you would actively humiliate your child, but it's going to make them stop. Well, let's be honest. There have been times I've wanted to actively humiliate our children. Oh, no. a good Like a, I threatened to wear a hot dog costume and like walk her into high school holding her hand. A good old-fashioned embarrassment... When you're being a little shit. ...is a different story. Oh, I'll get you back. <laughs> but not like this. I mean, this is very damaging psychologically. It's cruel. It is. Well, Gary was a highly intelligent child with an IQ of 146. He was bullied and teased mercilessly by his classmates for physical deformity. Gary's parents claimed that his misshapen head was a result of a head injury as a young boy when he fell out of a tree. So Gary's head has been described as football-shaped, which can only make me think of Stewie from Family Guy. Uh, yes, the, either that or Hey Arnold. Yeah. He certainly had a football-shaped head. But he definitely head. has an oddly-shaped head. And that would be tough. I mean, that'd be tough. You're going to get ridicule from your peers, you know, people who uh, don't know, just want to know. You know, and, and I don't, I've okay. never... Okay, bullies... Kids who taunt and tease are going to find something, even if you've got a normal-shaped head. Right. They're going to make fun of something. That's just what they do. But to have this physical deformity, something you absolutely cannot help. Right. And then to be teased by kids, I mean, that that's it's just really sad. It is really sad. And, and it's something beyond your control. Exactly. You can't even, like, change your look or, you know, I mean, it's, my God, it's a part of your body. Yeah, and your head. I mean, that's the most obvious Thing people are going to notice first and foremost. Well, I've drugged this big noggin around. Did people tease you about your big ass head? No, because I would just like bull run at them. When my out of control big wobble head. We're gonna have we're gonna have a contest, Dylan. I've decided uh, we're gonna give away some merch on Instagram, and the contest is gonna be. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Folks have to guess the circumference of your head, and whoever is closest is going to win some merch. Oh, my God. Is it going to be like the Price is Right set up? Yeah. Can we run this contest starting this week? Yes. Yeah, so we just have to follow through. No, we're going to. I'm sure some of our fans are like, these fuckers don't never follow through. That's with not their- true. I follow through. I've mailed lots of things to folks, Dylan. I'm just kidding. We have a couple to mail right now. I got you. Okay. So, in school, Gary was academically successful but had no friends. He was socially awkward. Relatable. Gary began developing an attitude toward the other kids, claiming they were not good enough to be his friends. And this was a bit of a defense mechanism because he didn't have any friends. So he liked to tell himself it's because I'm too smart to be friends with these kids. Like, I'm too cool for these kids. Yeah, and that's the one thing I don't think we can forget with Gary is he does have this, you know, a rather significant intelligence brain of his. So some of these feelings and stuff, the things he's dealing with could be twisted. Or, you know, viewed in a very different way than most people would look at it. Gary's stepmother was no better. If Michael was abusive to his children, Dorothea was an instigator. She joined in the taunting of Gary, often seeming to single him out for abuse. As a young teenager, Gary and uh, Terry, (laughs) these rhyming names are going to get me, Dylan. Gary, Terry, and her cousin Jerry. And Larry. their, Their sister Carrie came down here. Yeah, and their daddy a... was Harry. Oh, damn it! I mean, come on. So, as a young teenager, Gary and his younger brother Terry attempted to run away from home, hoping to hitchhike all the way to California from Ohio. Wow, it's a great distance, right? But they were discovered before getting too far away. Michael then sent Gary to a military school in Staunton, Virginia. Gary excelled at military school, but dropped out at seventeen before graduating. But he was said to be like a very on-point cadet, squared away, like his, you know, uh, teachers or commanding officers at this military school described him as, you know, an absolute dream as far as a cadet goes. Well, and and you've used this term, a squared away soldier and stuff in different stories and and stuff you've told me. So even in the military, that stands out, right? Someone who you never have to correct. They're all got their P's and Q's, crisp corners on their bed. They're, you know, they're always put together. Uniform impeccable, shoes shined. Yeah. So that's something people notice even in the military, right? Definitely. Well, he returns home to Ohio, enrolling in public school briefly before dropping out again. Now, some have speculated that Gary's decision to drop out of military school came after failing a West Point's entrance, a West Point entrance exam. In October of 1961, Gary joined the U.S. Army. Gary was considered an excellent soldier during boot camp. He was sent to San Antonio, Texas, where he trained as a medic. In May of 1962, Gary was sent to West Germany. While he was there, he earned his GED uh, within just a few weeks. I mean, again, he's a very impressive student. Like, he's very smart, intelligent, very book smart. Gary wasn't happy with this assignment in the Army and felt that he wasn't getting the training that he wanted. He did not want to be in West Germany. Like, this just was not going over well for him for whatever reason. 
So he he just uh, it's like he keeps trying to improve his life or or control his life. Is what it sounds like, but it's just not to his liking or exactly how he'd want it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly why I didn't it did, the resources I used didn't go into great detail about why he was displeased with his service in West Germany. But I imagine, I mean, it's post, you know, World War II. It's the Cold War. The wall is still there. It was probably, it was definitely a different time to be in in West Germany, I'm sure. So in August of 1962, Gary began complaining about headaches, dizziness, and blurred vision. (laughs) What is our problem I was going to say, does he have bird vision? He has some bird vision. Oh, my God, everywhere I go, there they are just fluttering around in the trees. Shit bird vision. (laughs) That's a damn shit bird. I'm sorry. I will... Learn to enunciate in the next five minutes, I promise. No, it's what people come to expect. Old mush mouth bitch like you. Yes. And a smoky mouth bitch like me on yep, the mic. That's true. Well, treatment for these issues resulted in a doctor diagnosing Gary with some mental health issues. He was treated with Stelazine. This didn't seem to help Gary, and he was sent to Philadelphia uh, to a VA hospital in October of 1962 for further, like, mental health treatment. While he was there, Gary was diagnosed with a schizoid personality disorder, and then the Army discharged him, and they gave him an honorable discharge. Oh, so they're just trying, they're like, let's just keep moving, Gary. We're not going to hold you up with a dishonorable or nothing to worry about. Right. And because of this, like, he will later be able to get financial compensation from the military. So, and that dishonorable, or with the honorable discharge, sorry. And that's a big deal. Dishonorable, basically, everything you've done has been for nothing. You're not getting any benefits. Is that how that works? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So while staying in Philadelphia, Gary became a um, licensed practical nurse, otherwise known as an LPN, then enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania, but dropped out after a semester. Gary found a job working at the Veterans Hospital in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, He was eventually let go because of tardiness, absenteeism, and reportedly rude behavior toward patients. Yeah, that's not going to be the qualities you want in an employee. (laughs) Or like a nurse. (laughs) Yeah, especially a nurse. Yeah. Yeah, you have no people skills, you hate everyone, and you make them mad. And so we're just going to say that nursing is not for you, bud. (laughs) Right. I mean, I've met a few nurses in my day that seem to fit this description. And on top of that, (laughs) you're late and we can't count on you to show up. So let's just, uh, again, keep it moving, Gary. Right? I mean, this is kind of a theme. It is a theme. Gary was awarded 100% disability, collecting both veterans benefits and Social Security. Boom. Gary's struggles with mental health carried on. He would be hospitalized a total of 22 times and attempt suicide 13 times in his adult life. Wow. So the, uh, it's obvious he has um, some issues. There are he, some problems. That he has some struggles dealing with. Yes. Now, by 1970, Gary's mother, Ellen, had been diagnosed with bone cancer. She was suffering the effects of alcoholism as well. Uh, Ellen committed suicide by drinking mercuric chloride. I don't even know what that is. I'm not sure either. Um, I'm just going to guess mercuric. It's some mercury, maybe. Has some damn mercury in it. His mother's death, compounded with Gary's inability to hold down a job or have a social life, deeply impacted him. After Ellen's death, Gary attempted overdosing on drugs. 
Terry, his younger brother, was also in and out of mental health treatment facilities. Gary would later make claims that the U.S. Army forced him to take LSD. Wow, and this would be, um, so uh, what, when he was in the Army, would be in that window of time when allegedly uh, military branches and the CIA were experimenting with LSD. Well, though it is true the military was experimenting with LSD, the tests mostly took place at the Edgewood Arsenal, which I believe is located in Maryland, and there are no documents showing that Gary was given the drug or part of the study, which, by the way, ended in 1967. Okay, so um, he claims to have been part of it, but there's nothing to back that up. Nothing to back it up. Absolutely. So by fall of 1971, Gary had decided to create a church called the United Church of the Ministers of God. Ooh, that's a good name. He had only five followers at the time. Gary began calling himself Bishop Gary, and initially Gary started the church as a tax scam, but soon began buying into his own bullshit. Gary wore a Roman collar around town. Is that like the one the pre, uh, the Catholic priests wear? I believe so. Looks like, kind of like a big ribbon. And that, the... from my understanding, that's yeah. Okay. What a Roman collar would be. Calling himself Bishop Gary, he had business cards. He would pass them out <laughs> around town. He began volunteering at the Elwin Institute, where he visited patients. And the Elwin Institute housed a lot of uh, folks with uh, intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities. And it was there that Gary began recruiting church followers. He preyed upon those who had autism, intellectual disabilities, and related challenges. Yeah, see, I mean, that, that's, that's not cool. That's not, you already have these people have their own struggles and stuff. And, and I know people typically mean well. But I think some people, depend on how their brain's wired and what they do deal with, I think religion can be a lot for them to even contemplate or deal with. Right, because they don't maybe have the critical thought element or multi layers to their thinking. Well, um, just to get personal, we've had this discussion with my son. Right, he's on the spectrum and he is very high functioning, but there are certain concepts that really seem to uh, give him anxiety, and religion is one of those. Uh, when I have relatives that are talking about the resurrection and end of day and, and these kinds of things like it really causes him some strife and we have to talk him down and be like it's okay because he he gets very worked up over this type of stuff right so and, and so the, that's certainly uh not cool for gary to be going around uh just looking for people he could take advantage of let's be honest well and you'll see that as a pattern in gary's life Gary invested $1,500 from his disability checks into a Merrill Lynch account beginning in, um, I'm sorry, in 1975. So he's taking this money, investing it uh, in the name of the church. And we're going to see that he's a very interesting character in that he seems to have these struggles, but then he's also very intelligent and seemingly very with it. Making sound financial decisions. Yeah. So through the church, he made a number of investments, including into Playboy magazine. Well. Through this Merrill Lynch account. Over the years, Heidnick was able to turn that $1,500 into nearly 7000 or I'm sorry, $750,000. Wow, that's a pretty good return. Yeah, so almost a millionaire, which uh, uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> 
and especially during this time period. Yeah, I mean that's going to be like a couple million. I, I don't know the exact number. Yeah, but that's a, that's a significant amount of money in the seventies and eighties. The kind of money where you could uh, draw, you know, income from it for years. Exactly. So as money rolled in, Gary drove around town in a Rolls Royce and a Cadillac. Yet there were times he was homeless, sleeping in a camper on the streets of southwestern Philadelphia. Well, and, and I think that reflects what's going on in his mind, you know, in his issues. Because in one instance, he can be looking like he has it all figured out, making great investment decisions, and, you know, everything's worked out for him. And then it's like he can go, next time you see him, he, he do, doesn't have a pot to piss in, you think even though he still has his invest this portfolio. So, yeah, that's very interesting. So, surprisingly, Gary's church services were being attended, though neighbors mostly said um, those who were in the congregation were homeless or were challenged. Um, Gary bought a three-story house where the church continued its business. Gary also rented out some of the bedrooms to tenants. In 1976, Gary Heidnick was charged with aggravated assault after pulling a gun on a tenant. The man had told Gary it would take a few days to get the rent money to him, and in a rage, Gary, who was carrying a concealed, unlicensed pistol, shot the man in the face. It grazed the tenant barely, but law enforcement arrested Gary all the same. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's... That's all, uh, that's very dangerous. You could you uh, yeah. could have killed this guy, and you're doing it in anger which is even more disturbing. So, yeah, that's a good call, cops. It was in the 1970s that Gary met a woman named uh, Anjanette Davidson. Now, Anjanette was African-American, and she had intellectual disabilities. Gary would tell his friends that he preferred dating black women and felt that they treated him better than white women did. His words. Um, Anjanette had significant cognitive challenges, in 1978, she birthed a daughter with Gary named Maxine. It was then that Gary took Anjanette to visit her sister, who lived in an institution. Anjanette's sister, Alberta, had been described as uh, mentally challenged. Um, she had a lot of, you know, issues and was like a toddler. Like they said, her mind was that of a child, like a small child, like a toddler. Wow. So it's... Uh, um... It'd be impossible to not know that she has a mental disability. Right. She needs constant care and attention. Okay. I literally needs to be reminded, like, it's time to eat. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, can't always do the bathroom thing on her own. 
I mean, she needs constant care and supervision. So Gary took the sister out for a daily visit and then never returns her. When authorities show up asking about Alberta's whereabouts, Gary denies having seen her since the visit. He had told Anjanette that Alberta had been returned to the Institute. Authorities didn't believe a story. A search of the house made a horrible discovery. Alberta was imprisoned in a storage room in Gary's basement. Oh, my God. When they find her, she is absolutely terrified. When returned to the hospital, it was discovered that Gary had sexually assaulted the woman. She had been both raped and sodomized. Alberta also had contracted gonorrhea. My God. From Gary. And they said she was absolutely terrified when they got her to the hospital. Like, she didn't want to have anything to do with any of the male nurses or staff. Um, that she was, like, absolutely traumatized. So imagine, I mean, she's like a little child that's been taken, locked up, horribly mistreated, raped and abused. Yeah, I mean, t- doing that to any human, any woman would be horrible, right? No way around it. But just her, with her mental capacity, it it almost adds another layer of horror to the situation. Well, it does. It's very fucking disturbing, and it just speaks to Gary's character and the types of shit he does like he's a very fucked up individual yeah and just kind of hanging around the edges around these places that may vocational places and stuff where these people who may have issues um um, or are just preying on them you know just who he who can he manipulate or kind of you know pick out of the crowd to do whatever he wants to that's so messed up gary was arrested charged with kidnapping rape false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. He was sentenced to prison, but that was overturned. At a resentencing hearing, Gary was ordered to spend three years in a mental treatment facility, like a a state-run mental hospital. I mean, who does? what judge does that? Who does that? When you see this, uh, what's happened, the evidence, what's happened to this poor woman, who decides this guy shouldn't be in jail? And I must wonder, is there voluntary deviant sexual contact now that they charged him with involuntary? I don't know. Maybe. Well, I guess there could be voluntary because in a lot of states, um, certain sex acts are considered deviant. But I guess if you're voluntarily participating in them. I'm illegal in 49 of the states. You know, I guess in some states you're not allowed to, you know, like... Put your mouth on each other's genitals and stuff. I wouldn't live in those states. <laughs> I'm like, can you stop me, you son of a bitch? They come in and arrest you. It's all groundless. You're like, yeah, yeah, I did it. Okay, enough. <laughs> so Gary was released in April of 1983, but ordered to attend a state-sanctioned mental health program, like an outpatient type of deal where he had to go to counseling, receive treatment. Get this, Dylan. During the parole hearing, a board member asked Gary a question, and instead of answering, Gary wrote down on a piece of paper, quote, the devil put a cookie in my throat. Ooh. So despite this answer, the parole board found that he was okay for release. Yeah, because that's a total, totally normal thing that people say when you're trying to assess their their attitude and, and, and what's going on in their brain. The Doc Lord put a cookie in my throat. It was an Oreo. God, the Oreos are freaking good. And he gave me some cold milk. Was it double stuffed? Oh, jeez. That shouldn't <laughs> even be made. This shit's too good. Because it's doubly good. 
Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, people really like the cream in the middle of the Oreo, and I've always just been a fan of the cookie. I really uh-uh. enjoy, I like the cookie. So you want thicker cookie? Yeah. Oh. I like the cookie part. You like thick things, do you? Yep. All right. Case in point, he's sitting across from me. That's it. Thicker than a Snickers. Ooh, thicker than a Snickers. Baby. Oh, oh that T-shirt. Yeah. Well, okay. they say thick thighs save lives, Dylan. It's, it's true. Okay, so when he's released from the hospital at Greater Ford, uh, Gary can't track down his former girlfriend, Anjanette, but he learns that his daughter, Maxine, was taken into foster care. Can we say Anjanette is a beautiful name? It is a beautiful name. It is. Um, angered by this, Gary felt like society had robbed him of a family and that he deserved a wife and a child. Now, Gary spent a few more years operating his church and frequenting sex workers, mostly African-American women in Philadelphia. Now, after his release, uh, Gary joined a matrimonial service where he began corresponding with a Filipino woman named Betty Disto. So this is long before the internet and all that mess. Um, it's like a dating service. It's like a mail order. Where they hook people up. Type of situation. Yeah. So maybe like 90 Day Fiance before the 90 Days, Dylan. Oh, I think no, you just created a new show. <laughs> <laughs> They're already doing that one. So John Cassidy was Gary's best friend at the time, and he told Philadelphia Magazine that Gary had wanted to find a very subservient woman. Considering Betty was young and malleable, the pair wrote letters for two years, and Gary really thought, and again, this is a very stereotype, we're going to find some racism in the story, and these very, like, horrific stereotypes. Like, Gary honestly thought because she was from the Philippines that that would make her, like, a subservient type of woman. Okay. Well, right? I mean, yeah, what are you, what are you going to do? That's just, uh, that's just not smart to generalize people, period. Right. But this is what what he wants is someone who is going to do anything he says. Cows down to him. Exactly. Listens to exactly what he wants. Everything. He wants a slave. He doesn't want a partner. Yeah, I know. And, and that's just what's weird about it. Who would want to be, um, who'd want to be in a relationship like that? I, I, from his perspective, why would you want someone to, you know, I don't know. I guess it's people that are full of themselves, think they matter more than other people. Now, I must say, I have seen um, what you might consider the stereotypical couple, even locally, uh, around. You know, you have the older gentleman, always typically looks like he was in the military. And, and then you have the quite younger, um, be it Filipino, Asian, you know, uh, person with them. And they're literally like walking around looking down at the ground and shit. And they won't even make eye contact with you. You know, you know, not that you're staring at them, just in, in casual passing. And, uh, and that just makes me wonder sometimes, like, if I see any woman with that demeanor, or any man, rather, for that fact, are they be are they okay? Are they are in an abusive relationship? You know what I mean? I worked with a gentleman who had a wife that was from uh, overseas, and everybody said that it was like a mail-order situation, that he had basically picked her out of a catalog and, and married her and she was a very sweet woman they had a young child together but there was a significant age difference and he was very controlling i mean she was not allowed to drive have a job 
He controlled finances. I mean, it was like every aspect of this woman's life. And who am I to say that she was unhappy? I mean, maybe she was appreciative. She loved him. Maybe she was okay in this relationship. But just from an outsider's perspective, I often thought like, is she okay? Is this an okay situation? It was like troubling to me. Yeah, I mean, honestly, how's that any better than the the old Mormon men that would pick out of a catalog of young girls? I mean, honestly, I mean. But then again, I mean, I'm there not, are cultural differences. So, who am I to say that maybe that wasn't a good marriage for her? I mean, I don't know. And, and I'm not saying every relationship that starts like that. It, it, I'm sure there's plenty of great relationships out there. You know, these are all just. Uh, Dylan's brain farts while he walks around in public. Yeah, I'm sure someone's going to say we're offensive or something. Yeah, I'm not trying to offend. So, uh, basically, he finds uh, this girl in this mail order catalog, and I say she's girl because she's very young when she starts communicating with Gary. I mean, I think she was basically like 18, 19, like fairly young. And, you know, she's wants to meet a nice man, come to the United States, start a new life together. So, in 1985, Betty did come to Philadelphia to meet Gary. And... While she had found him very clean-cut and well-spoken in his letters, he seemed very intelligent and appeared to be very successful, what she found in the real Gary was, to say the least, a letdown. Kind of a mess, right? Well, his home that he owned was absolutely filthy, like filthy, filthy, like trash everywhere, food wrappers, nobody's ever mopped, dusted, vacuumed this place. Okay. Like it's just gross. So it's gross. It's it's nasty. He just lives in squalor. Gary was unkempt. He was scraggly. He usually wore dirty clothes. He's got that weird misshapen head that we've talked about. And so a lot of times he would kind of grow his hair out. And of course, this is like the 80s, but he would grow his hair kind of in the shaggy style, I guess, almost trying to mask his oddly shaped head. Right. You know, he'd grow out a big bushy beard. Kind of looked a little bit like the Unabomber in some photos. That uh, that that always helps you look uh, more sane. Yeah. Well, the pair went ahead and married on October 3rd of 1985, um, just a couple days after she had made her way to the United States. So soon after they wed, Betty caught Gary in bed with another woman. See, why go through all that? You've, you brought this poor girl, you know over and who knows what she expects out of it and all that and that's great and, and to go through all that and then just turn right around and cheat on her like I, I don't know why you even do all that he forced betty to watch him have sex with this other woman gary then proceeded to rape his wife betty was beaten and abused by gary from the get-go basically in a few short weeks she was able to reach out to members of the Filipino community in Philadelphia who eventually helped her escape the marriage. Uh, and that's good. Despite only being together a short period, Betty had become pregnant with Gary's child. He would not learn of his son's existence until 1987 when Betty filed for child support. Jesse John Disto was born in 1986. So they're only together... A very short period, like maybe uh, two months before she is able to get away from him. Basically, in the research, she had to kind of go into hiding. Like, she was terrified of him. And she's in a foreign country. She doesn't have family here. She doesn't have a support system. Thankfully, the Filipino community reached out, housed her, uh, helped her get on her feet. But they were, like, hiding her out because she was afraid of Gary. So she, she basically instantly knew when she got here. This situation's not exactly what I th thought it was. It's bad. And, and and 
how can I get out of this situation? It didn't take her long. Absolutely. Which is good for her. You know, I think a lot of women would be terrified in the situation, but wouldn't um, be able to reach out to get the help. Maybe would be afraid to get help and would be stuck in it for a much longer period of time. Yeah. Good for her. After Betty's abrupt departure from the awful marriage, Gary meets a woman named Gail Lincow, and they had a son together named Gary Jr. But like his other child, Gary Jr. was placed in foster care shortly after his birth. So now both of Gary's kids, Maxine and Gary Jr., have been placed into foster care. And this was also because his mother had um, intellectual disabilities and was unable to care for the baby, much like Anjanette. Well, I was going to say, you know, it would. Uh, it seems that neither parent is is able to take care of the child. In the meantime, Gary is running his church with an iron fist. He has absolute power and responsibility over the church, including the financial aspects. Gary's continuing to conduct church from the Cedar Avenue home that he owns. He had created a constitution with 18 articles. Each article was full of contradictions and reflected Gary's feelings of superiority. Some psychologists have estimated that Gary began the church as a way to prove to others he was better than them. Gary suffered delusions of grandeur, and the church only escalated this feeling for him. Well, and that makes sense. You know, well, for one, it's a great way to hide money, funnel money through. And you certainly not everyone has a church, so I, I guess I could see the. Can I, can I say we're being assaulted by gnats yeah, right now? Heather is being fuck? attacked while she's trying to lay out this uh, great I know, story. I'm like, what is there like a rotten banana under my seat or something? Like, <laughs> oh, what the fuck! I had some apple peels in my pocket. I'm sorry about that, Jeez, y'all. <laughs> I know they're everywhere. It's like, uh, oh my god, the ants and the gnats. It'd be like a horror movie. So, as we know, Gary preyed on mentally disabled people because he could easily manipulate them. Gary was known to abuse his church members verbally and physically. He's just an asshole, man. He is. Now, most of his young life and into his 20s, Gary was unable to have sexual relationships with women. He was socially awkward, and let's be honest, he was goofy looking. Right? So, not exactly a charmer. As a child, Gary had been known to be like a chronic masturbator. Jesus. As an adult, Gary became hypersexual. He was having sex with prostitutes and various members of his church, including a young woman named Sandra Lindsay. When Sandra became pregnant, Gary offered to pay her $1,000 if she would keep the baby. But Sandra had an abortion, and Gary was devastated. Gary wanted a child. Actually, he wanted to have children. He wanted like a house full of kids. And, and so the two children he's fathered have been removed. Yes. And so I guess that bothered. But likely Gary just wants more people to control, sounds possibly. Um, but um, I, it sounds like he struggles with some type of uh, a sex addiction or um, some kind of, yeah, some issue there, right? Oh, definitely. I think that he definitely um, had some sort of hypersexual like addiction now, you say something like chronic masturbator, of, you know, people go, ho, ho, chuckle. But, I, I mean, what that truly is, I'm, I'm guessing, is, like, you can't control yourself. And it's, like, inappropriate times. Inappropriate times, school, places. Work, church. You're just, you're basically, yeah. yeah. So, that that's a, that's actually a really big deal and could be uh, lots of consequences come from that. Yes. Well, it was in November of 1986 that Gary succumbed to the demons in his head. He came up with this idea, a plan 
he wanted to kidnap, imprison, and impregnate 10 different women. It's a sound plan. You know, he's really thought about it and, and went over all the ins and outs and uh, put it together like a business plan of, of my poor slave kidnapped mothers of my babies. I mean, again, this is a, it's obvious that he's not all there. I mean, he's making these decisions and has intent, and he I would say he's competent. But, um, I mean, who, th- who thinks like that? Well, who Gary thinks- is a fucking racist, misogynistic pig, and he is the kind of guy who thinks that women owe him something, that all women are here for is sex and procreation. And, and, and he's a fucking pig. And so, like, the saying he likes black women, it doesn't sound like he really likes black women. It sounds like is someone to control... And, and, like, exert his superiority over them. Well, that's exactly what it was, Dylan. And I didn't go into too great of detail or talk at length about that. But according to his best friend, a man who knew Gary very well, that's exactly how he described Gary. He was like he preyed upon black women, which, one, you know, Gary just had a sexual attraction to black women. Cool, right? Black women are beautiful. Why would you not? Exactly. Black is beautiful. But also, it was because he saw them as lesser because they came from poor communities. Um, They often were, uh, you know, living in poverty, and he felt superior to them. So at the end of the day, Gary is just, like, fetishizing these women, and he's a fucking racist, misogynistic prick. Damn. Tell us how you really feel about Gary. Well, I will. He is. Gary's a dick. He is. So Josefina Rivera was a sex worker from North Philadelphia who lived with her boyfriend. After a fight, she departed their apartment to go make some money. As she was walking down the street, a white Cadillac DeVille approached. Inside was a plainly dressed white man who was wearing an expensive gold watch. So she's like, okay, you know, here's a guy who's got some money. I need to make some money. They kind of work out a deal. Um, Gary takes her to McDonald's where they sat in silence while he drinks a cup of coffee. That's not weird. Now, Josephina notices that his clothes were cheap and dirty, but that he was wearing a gold watch, a bracelet, and a gold chain around his neck. Plus, he was driving this really nice car, so she figured he was good for the money. Uh, After this awkward, quiet cup of coffee, uh, he then drives her to a dilapidated house uh, parked in the driveway was a Rolls Royce. I mean, just uh, could you imagine the visuals uh, of this? You know, you got these guy has these two nice cars, um, a little, you know, some jewelry, gold and stuff, but he's kind of gross. You're like, oh, I'm not sure. So Josephine is basically thinking this guy's like an eccentric millionaire. Or That's something, what, yeah, right. Like, right. He's got money, but he's obviously kind of eccentric and strange. Yeah, and he and smells. So, so that's her thought. It's like, okay. Inside, the house was just as disgusting as she imagined from the outside. Uh, Josephina noticed trash piled up inside, and the home had clearly not been cleaned probably ever. It's grody. She's grossed out. Who could? I don't know. I know everybody has different ideas of the house being kept and different habits. But just to, just to, this is just gross. And I just don't even know how you could even sit down and relax in, in this environment. It's so nasty. No. Just your descriptions of it gives me feelings. A dirty house gives me massive anxiety. 
I, I get worked into a frenzy over it and feel like I'm about to have a panic attack if I even feel like the floor is kind of dirty. And you'll be like, Heather, the house is fine. And I'm like, no, oh, it's awful. Well, and, and it's fine. Deal but, with it. but just to, I mean, I don't know. I just don't know how you ever relax or enjoy your place. No, when I've been to, and I try not to be too judgmental, but when I've gone to people's houses and it's like filthy, I literally don't want to sit on the couch. No. Like, I know that's probably mean to say, but I've been to homes where I'm like, I don't want to sit on that sofa. I'll just stand here. Thanks. <laughs> so here, this is almost like something out of a movie, what she's describing. Oh, yeah. This house sounds. This house of horrors. Super gross. Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. Yeah. So what amazed Josephina was that there was a hallway which was papered with $1 and $5 bills. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, she's not a wealthy woman, and so she's seeing this hallway with all this cash, and she's, like, kind of mesmerized by it. Like, what the fuck, right? She follows Gary into a bedroom where they had sex on a waterbed. Yeah. Afterwards, she was dressing, and that's when Gary clutched two hands around her neck and began choking Josephina. She was able to loosen his grip, but that's when Gary grabbed her arms and started to tie her around the waist like tie her arms together and tie this rope around her waist oh my god so she's being attacked and she doesn't know what the hell's going on she thinks we just you know did did my thing you know sex worker whatever and uh we so, had a business transaction yeah i'm and trying to leave i'm gonna get the hell out of here because this guy's kind of gross and now she's being attacked and, and basically overpowered he then drags her down to a cold wet basement She's tossed onto a dirty mattress, which is lying on the floor, and Gary shackles her ankles, and then he takes out some super glue and puts it in the clamps oh my on God. the shackles. He even takes out a hairdryer and starts blowing hot air onto the glue, which is now in the shackle locks, to try to prevent her from escaping. So now you're, you've gone from, uh, oh, this guy's pushy or, you know, just an, a, a mean asshole to terrified now you're in basically a dungeon shackled to a dirty mattress on the floor and, and this guy putting glue in the lock so you couldn't pick at it if you wanted to well imaginally so josephina is like freaking the fuck out and who wouldn't be right and what she noted was that gary worked in a very calm methodical fashion that's even scarier yeah so that's making her even more afraid of what's going to happen to her. And after he's finished with all of this, he crawls up on Josephina's body and puts his head in her lap. And that's when the pair falls asleep. Oh, my God. Because she was like, at that point, she was so exhausted and so overcome with emotion that she was like, I just was so exhausted. I basically just passed out. And so he's like all curled up with her. Okay. On this mattress. Yeah. That's kind of conflicting uh, messages you're sending, right? Oh, certainly. Now, when Josephina woke, she found a living nightmare. Um, searching her surroundings, the basement had been repurposed into a prison cell. A portion of the concrete floor had been removed, and a three-foot pit had been dug down into the dirt under the concrete. I mean, I don't even know how you process seeing this. So, again, very similar to Buffalo Bill, who kept his victims in a pit. Yeah. Right? Gary explained that his plan was to bring 10 women to the basement. Now, Josephina scoffed at this plan. Like, you're a fucking idiot. That's never going to work. What are you doing? And this angered Gary. He raped her, 
And as soon as he leaves the basement, Josephina tries to escape. She managed to pry open a window, but she also had this chain like attached to her ankles and it was preventing her from being able to climb entirely out the window. But she was able to hoist herself up kind of halfway um, despite the chain and she began screaming for help. Unfortunately, the only help to arrive was Gary. Damn it. He like kind of pushed her back down into the basement. Um, he runs down, you know, grabs her from this window and then he starts beating her with a stick. And it's basically the wooden stick, like the handle of a shovel that he's taken the shovel end off. So it's oh just God. this big, big, heavy, heavy, thick stick. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it, right, is a shovel handle. Yeah, and that's going to have some weight to it. I mean, that's just not something you want to be hit with. No. Yeah. No. Uh, so after he beats her with this, he then throws her body in the three-foot dirt pit deep in the floor. That's when Gary piles wood planks across the top of the pit and then places bags of dirt on it so she can't get out so trapping her down in this dingy wet mud pit yeah that she basically it's like basically um the size of for like a body or like a coffin like it's not very big right and puts her down in this three feet down into the ground well there you go terrified terrified i don't even know how you process all that Without your brain just, you know, fracturing and, and your realities. No, this is like my worst nightmare. Claustrophobic, so, no way. That's inter interesting. You can really see the elements that, um, you know, uh, Hollywood took and for the Buffalo Bill character. And, and, of course, they sensationalized it. They, you know, changed it. But there definitely is all the, all the uh, makings there of uh, the Buffalo Bill story. That's very interesting. Yeah. So Gary then turns a radio on to full volume to drown out her screams and cries. A few hours later, Gary lifts the planks and pulls Josephina from the makeshift pit. He ties her to a pipe, and that's when she notices there's a second woman chained up. Oh, my God. Across so, from her. So he's moving along with his stupid plan. This new woman is half naked. And when the women are finally alone, the second woman explains that her name is Sandra Lindsay. Now, if you remember earlier in the story, uh, I mentioned her. She was a, a woman with some intellectual disabilities who kind of hung out with Gary, came by, went to church services, had gotten pregnant. He offered to pay her $1,000 for the baby, and she had an abortion. Okay, so Gary's, this, she's been on his list of people he wants to get. And now she's down. Now you have a second victim in the dungeon. Now, Sandra explains that, you know, she's known Gary for some years. The, the story with Sandra was she had left the day after Thanksgiving to buy some medicine for menstrual cramps. And she never returned home. A few days later, Sandy, um, after she'd gone missing, uh, Gary came downstairs to say that her sisters were calling for her. Because, again, she's known to hang out at Gary's house. So not wanting to arouse suspicion, Gary forces Sandra to write a letter explaining that she's okay, but she's just taken off. Yeah, I'm just hanging out. So while this is all happening, the women are kept naked. They're repeatedly raped. It was so cold in the basement that the women had to huddle together to keep from freezing. If they cried or screamed for help, Gary would beat them with a wooden stick. Sandy's mother eventually filed a missing persons report, noting that her daughter often hung out at Gary's house, and she believed he 
could know her whereabouts, right? So a police officer comes to Gary's house, but is unable to reach him. He knocks on the door a few times, can't get him, so he just gives up looking for Sandra. Dude, you got this old creepy-ass house, all dirty and dingy and stuff. As an investigator, I'd be like, hmm, you know, this looks like a house where someone would disappear from. So you're just going to give up, like, oh, they're not home, and they just never go back? It's just a missing persons report. You know, you don't even make contact with the one person the family members are saying, look, you need to talk to this guy. Damn it, cop. Well, as Christmas approached, Gary told the women he needed another wife. 19-year-old Lisa Thomas was walking to a friend's house when Gary's Cadillac rolls up. Gary makes a lewd comment at her. Lisa is insulted, and she lets him know right away that she is not a prostitute. Gary apologizes profusely and offers to make it up to her by buying the woman dinner. He then offered to take her to Atlantic City. Well, she tells him, I don't have anything to wear to Atlantic City. So he hands her $50 and tells her he's going to take her shopping for some clothes. Oh, my God. Lisa got into the car, and Gary drove the woman to Sears, where Lisa bought a few outfits. He then takes her to dinner, and while they're having dinner, she gets a glass of wine and begins feeling ill, though she's only, like, had a few sips of this wine. But she's starting to feel like maybe she's been drugged. Oh, my God. Like, she's not feeling right at all. She's not drunk, but, like, she knows I'm fainting, something's not right. I think I've been drugged. And when she comes to, she's in the basement with the two other women. Man, you know, that is would be so damn scary to have a few sips of a drink and just almost instantly know that you're feeling woozy and that it's you don't know what it is, but you know it's some strong drug and that you're you're going to pass out and there's just absolutely nothing you could do about it. And the last image you see is this guy with his big, dumb, misshapen head leering at you stewie's just leering at you yeah all dirty and with his scraggly hair and his big bushman beard or whatever and just like how to, i mean how scary how scary would that be it's very 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 scary my god I, i'm surprised i think you've drugged my beer before yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah and i wake up in the basement that's crazy but you've left and went on vacation without me i wish i wish we had a basement i could put you in I wish we had a basement, too. So, after he kidnaps Lisa and he has all three women, he spends the next week raping and beating them. Gary then starts trying out some new methods of torture, like hanging the women from pipes in the ceiling. Yeah, so he's just, um, he's like playing around, trying to figure out how exactly he can do this, how he can exert complete control, uh, different forms of punishment, how strange that is. And uh, these poor women, uh, just, you know, all they have is each other. You know, the moments when they're alone and they can talk about, I mean, this is insanity. I mean, this is not something anyone could ever imagine going through in their life. Josephina devises a plan, and she begins basically playing Gary. She could see that any disobedience was met with abuse. Josephina begins telling him that she likes being his wife, and she tries winning his favor. He would require the women to tell on each other if they broke the rules, and he would often force them to beat each other with the stick. Josephina began earning privileges from Gary, like he would bring her a hot dog or some chocolate. 
she would tell on the other women for violating Gary's rules, and that's when he would get her to start helping, like, beat the women, the other women. So it was his way of pitting the women against each other. If she did what she was told um, by Gary, then he would reward her. He would let her sleep outside of the hole, um, but he would make it very clear that if she disobeyed him in any way, she could lose all of her privileges. Disobeying him was dangerous. When one of the women displeased him, Heidnick would put them on punishment. That means they would be starved, beaten, and tortured. Sometimes he would cut duct tape around their mouths and slowly jam a screwdriver into their ears just to watch them squirm. What the hell, dude? There's also another reason for the screwdriver that I'll get into here in a minute. That's terrifying. So about a week after, he brought in another woman, 23-year-old Deborah Dudley. But Dudley was not the kind of woman to go down without a fight. She had lived a very hard life on the streets and was not about to let Gary get the best of her. Some would say she was feisty, which is a, a very, uh, not a good way to describe her because she's way more than feisty. So uh, Gary's not the first asshole this woman's come across before in her life. No, she's like tough as nails. She's been fighting all her damn life she has. to protect herself from fucking men. Yeah, like Gary. And, and, uh. And so, yeah, she's not she's not someone to be played with. No. Like. And every time Gary would show up in the basement, Deborah was belligerent. She would call him names, challenge his authority, insult his manhood. Like, she would go out of her way to just, like, fuck with his head. And in some ways, it worked. With Deborah's arrival, the sexual abuse increased. Gary began raping the women multiple times a day and demanded that the other women start having sex with each other. When they were well-behaved, he provided baby wipes and a portable toilet for them so they could clean themselves. After a while, he would reward the women with a shower, but sex would always follow. And they knew that was part of the reward was to get punished by having sex with Gary. Some days, Gary fed the women only bread and water. Other days, he would bring them Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. He began feeding the women canned dog food and then started beating them if they didn't clean their plates. Jesus. On Josephina's birthday, he brought the women Chinese food to eat. Then Gary added another victim to his pregnancy harem, 18-year-old Jacqueline Askins. So by now, Gary is convinced that Sandra Lindsay and Josephina are pregnant with his babies. This improves his mood for a short period. But then Gary catches Sandy trying to lift planks off the pit to, like, help the other women get up and out. He hangs her by one hand up from this pipe and so her legs can like her feet barely touch the ground oh my and god she's hanging by like this one arm what a horrible position to be in yeah she begins refusing to eat and gary starts force feeding sandy she develops a high temperature and her health is deteriorating quickly after days of hanging in the basement sandy's body is limp now at first gary says she's faking it but as he starts to inspect her body he realizes sandy has no pulse that's when Gary carries her body upstairs. What follows is horrifying. There's no other word for it. The four women downstairs can hear a power saw going on for hours. The sound of this horrible saw. Jesus. Now, could you imagine the poor women left? What they're thinking. What they're thinking. How they're feeling. The emotional torture, the contrast between... Eating, you know, moldy bread one day and a Philly cheesesteak the next and pitting them against each other. And uh, he he really does seem to have a some kind of a 
loose plan to what he thinks he can achieve with this. And now here he has four or five women in his damn basement. So what we know about Sandy Lindsay is this. Gary chopped Sandra's flesh with a meat processor and claims to have fed the meat to his dogs. Other meat he mixed with dog food and is said to have fed to the captive women. Jesus. Although there is no definitive proof of this, they believe it happened and he has alluded to this. Another layer of horror. There's so many layers of horror in this story, Dylan. It is very disturbing. So the stench upstairs is almost too much for neighbors to bear, and after a while they begin complaining. Law enforcement is sent over to Gary's house to check the source of the foul odor radiating from inside. Gary tells the cops he overcooked a dinner roast and burned it. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Gacy. Must be your bad plumbing. So it seems you're not much of a cook there, Gary. Uh, It smells kind of like a... You've murdered and tortured and dismembered someone in here. Now, in the meantime, the women in the basement are devising different plans of attack against Gary. Josephina warns him of their plans. That's when Gary decides to puncture their eardrums with screwdrivers. He believes if he deafens the women, they won't know he's coming to the basement and they can't plan an assault on him. Oh, my God. But it doesn't work. It's just torturous pain for these women. One day, Deborah is being particularly defiant. After some insults are hurled at him, Gary grabs Deborah and leads her upstairs. Frightened, the other women are not sure what he's going to do to the woman. But when she finally comes back downstairs, he puts her in the pit, and she just appears to be in shock. Later, when the women are alone again, Deborah manages to tell them the horror she witnessed upstairs. Gary had Sandy's head in a pot on the stove. Her ribcage was being roasted in the oven. Other body parts were in the freezer. It took Deborah several days to reco- recover from what she had seen upstairs. Like she was so fucking disturbed. My God, the the visual images, the smells, the sounds of this. I mean, I couldn't even imagine being put through this and, and you're already wore down from the being trapped and kidnapped and raped and all these other abused and beat and then to see that on top of it like sounds like something to the degree of if you keep it up this will be you right and, and um i mean i don't i don't even understand how these women are able to even still be um sh- uh, lucid I mean, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Just like not totally out of your damn mind, you know? Gary had been escalating his torture of the women. What he decided to do next was remove insulation from the wires in the basement. And he would plug one end into a socket. Then he would take the exposed wires and tap them to the women's chains, giving them like a little zap. So he's hitting them with a 110 volts out of the wall there, likely. Which is really dangerous currency, or it's really dangerous voltage. There's people out there like, he don't know nothing about no damn volts. But uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's just, uh, again, uh, being electrocuted or hit touching an electric fence, I hate that feeling, even on the smallest scale. So I couldn't, I, couldn't, I don't know. So one day after Deborah had seen the, the body of Sandra Lindsay, um, she had disobeyed him, and... 
because again, like she's just really sassy. She's like, fuck you. You're going to have to kill me. Fuck you, basically. So Gary fills the pit in the floor with cold water from a hose. He then forces three of the women inside this cold, wet pit, but not Josephina. He begins jolting them by touching the wire to their metal chains while they're in the cold water. Afterwards, Deborah Dudley is floating like half underwater, and that's when the women tell Gary like she's dead. He remains calm and tells the women, well, be glad it's not you. And that's when he pulls Deborah Dudley out from the watery pit and drags her body upstairs. My God. By now, Josephina has earned Gary's trust, and she was kind of able to leave the basement. Not all the time, but he would allow her to kind of come and go. He also gave her permission to shower and wear clothing, unlike the other captives downstairs. He kept those women naked. Gary would take Josephina out to restaurants and even to visit friends. See, uh, that's where I don't understand. You know, is she just trying to improve her situation or, you know, uh, wait for the proper moment to escape? Well, that is her claim, is that she is really trying to do both of those things. Although later, some of the victims and outside folks will say they think she was an accomplice so we'll get into that in a minute but yeah he would like take her out to dinner he would go hang out at his friend's house and he would take her and the friend was like i never knew anything was wrong she didn't seem distressed at all she was like laughing joking like having a great time like she's just hanging out so very strange right well she's been through a lot well, I, she has. I think that's one thing that we can't gloss over or anyone looking at this story like oh you know she'd She's been through a lot. Well, she has. And that's the thing. We, we don't really know, like, what her mental state was. Yeah, exactly. Because this, this is some horrible things these poor women have been through. Gary would tell her if he was ever caught, he would know how to play crazy, and he could outsmart psychologists because he had done it time and time again. Okay. After Deborah's death, Gary brought the women a mattress, and he stopped making them sleep in the pit. He then gave them some blankets and eventually brought a TV downstairs. Um, he did dump Deborah's body in a wooded area outside of Philadelphia with Josephina's help. To replace Deborah, Gary kidnaps a young woman named Agnes Adams, and it is during this time that Josephina realizes she's got to do something. Gary's behavior is carrying on and is obviously like not going to stop anytime soon. She finally begs him to allow her to visit some family members. So Gary agrees. He drives her to a gas station near the apartment uh, where she formerly lived, and he tells her that he will wait there for her. Like, you have X amount of time to go visit your family, and you need to come back. Josephina promises when she comes back, she's going to bring another woman for Gary's collection. Josephina has shown him loyalty to this point, and believing her feelings are genuine, Gary allows her to visit with her family for a few hours. That is when she is able to escape. Josephina makes her way to the apartment she shared with her boyfriend once, uh, Vincent Nelson, uh, Nelson. Now, at first, Nelson doesn't believe her outrageous story. I mean, who would believe this? So she's been missing. She got her boy, uh, her former boyfriend. They, she left on bad terms. They had had a fight. Okay. She went out to make money and then just disappears. So he's like, "You've been gone for four months." You physically look okay, right? Your tail is simply too wild. I mean, he's like, 
you've lost your damn mind. You're on drugs. I think that would be most people's reaction. Anyone telling a story like this, like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Because that, that doesn't sound believable. So after a period of Josephine just begging him to believe her, please, he finally calls the police and they show up to take down a report. The police also find her story just completely uncredible until she lifts up her pants, shows them her legs, which have chafing and bruising from the leg chains. So here you finally made that leap, that scary leap to try to get help. And and like everyone, no, no one's helping you. Yes. Like they don't believe you. Right. Now, could you imagine that state of mind you'd be in at that point? No. But you have to consider the time period. I mean, this is the 80s. She is a poor black sex worker. And we all know that law enforcement and the community at large don't typically care about these victims. No, no. Being uh, she, in the cop's eyes, she's going to have uh, two strikes against three strikes. A woman, poor sex worker. And black. And black. Oh, I'm sorry. The strikes just keep going. Right. So they're not going to take her serious. They're not going to go out of their way to help her, likely. No, which is disgusting. But they see the chafing and the bruising from the chains, and then, okay, her story is starting to make sense. They find Gary waiting at the gas station. Okay. So they finally get Gary. And on March 25th, 1987, around 5 a.m., police surround 3520 North Marshall Street in Philadelphia. Officers can't break down the door because of Gary's intricate lock system. The windows are covered in metal bars, and they have, like, crucifixes attached to the metal bars. Which police are like, what the fuck? They have to get a locksmith, basically, to come in to open the locks for them. And he's created this whole, like, weird intricate lock system. That takes like some time to dismantle. So it, it, it's it's so stout they can't just bust the door in. Right. And there's no way to get in or out of the house. No. Inside the home. So it's disgusting. It's like a hoarder house. Trash everywhere. It stinks to high heaven. And we all know why. I mean, there's a fucking rotting corpse in the house. Right? Yeah. So they're just like, what the fuck is this that they've stumbled upon? But, wait, Dylan, it only gets worse. Officers descend on the basement where they find two women chained up on a mattress. The women are fucking terrified and and freaking out. And the officers have to explain, like, we're cops. We're here to help you. And the women are just, like, scared out of their mind. Yeah, they've been abused so long. Anyone who comes down those stairs in in their mind is going to be another potential abuser. Let alone if it's a man. They're not going to trust or go near any man. Even when they're there saying, hey, we're here to help. I mean, I could, I could just imagine the, from the cops' perspective, finding these battered, tortured, captives, captive women, and, and that's been going on for months and months and months, and, and uh, just like, what the hell have we stumbled into? You know. Well, when the women finally are able to kind of calm down, they give the officers direction, um, so the cops are able to remove the dirt bags and some planks, and that's when they find Agnes down in the pit. The kitchen is like a horror movie. There is a fatty tissue of some kind boiling in a pot on the stove. They find an industrial food processor with some kind of meat inside. There are human remains, including ribs, in the freezer, along with Sandy's head, which has been cooked, by the way. Inside a closet, they find a huge collection of pornography featuring African-American women, and it's like brutal 
degrading pornography, which we all know having pornography in your possession is not a crime, but I think it just speaks to how Gary viewed these women. Well, certainly. And, and yeah, we're not here to kink shame anyone. Whatever you like, you get to like it. But I, I mean, I think we all, most of us would agree that certain types of really violent porn, be it child porn or really super violent and just it has just these themes to it that there's nothing you know it's hard to imagine why someone's into that and and if they are into that it, it typically would change your view of that person because it's so damn hardcore because there still is such a thing as hard hardcore and nowadays it's hard to imagine but i i certainly feel that way if i found some you know, just a brutalizing torture porn or something. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, what's this person into, right? Right. And that's kind of what they thought. I mean, they've already got Gary. They've got these women well, my God. up. And then they find this collection of porn that's just like, what the hell is this shit? It's like the same monstrous type of stuff that they're seeing downstairs right. with these women. They had to use bolt cutters to remove the women's chains, and they were finally, like, very carefully transported to the hospital for care. Gary is arrested and taken into custody. He was arraigned on April 23rd of 1987 for kidnapping, murder, rape, aggravated assault, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, false imprisonment, indecent exposure, simple assault, indecent assault, and unlawful restraint. Other inmates learn of Gary's House of Horrors and pretty quickly beat him up. Because it was so so bad, right? Yeah. He has to be moved to, like, the mental health section of the jail and kept there because he can't be out in gin pop because somebody's going to fucking kill him. So they had to put him in protective custody. Basically. And, uh, good. You know, fuck Gary. I mean, he did this intentionally to, you know, woman after woman, and, you know, uh, uh, preying on these people that had, you know, emotional disabilities or mental disabilities and things like that. So he's a fucking asshole. And I hope they cave his damn big ass misshapen head in. Well, a week after his arrest, Gary attempts to hang himself in his cell. At the trial, the victims testify about their rape and abuse at the hands of Gary Hydneck. Though some consider her an accomplice, no charges are ever filed against Josephina, and she's actually allowed to testify against Gary. 24 pounds of human flesh were found inside the house, a story which quickly spread across Philadelphia and then captivated the nation. Well, in the case of Josephina, in the end, she did get him caught. She did. And the other girls rescued, so I, I think it's uh, it would be... Um, just the wrong move to try to figure out exactly how or when she should have went about that stuff. Because, I mean, they, they were just abused and mentally tortured for so long. You know, you, you, you your perspective on things, or when you do something, um, who, who, what, who, who, hey, hey, who is... Us to well, at say, the end of the day, we're all animals, yes. and our survival instinct is going to kick in. Exactly. No matter what sort of depravity we have to endure to live. I mean, I think we see that the human spirit's um, need to survive is is pretty strong. I mean, look at the fucking Donner Party. I mean, come on. You know, I think when people are put in certain situations, they find themselves doing things they normally would never even consider. Well, and that's the thing. Even like... 
telling on the other girls or doing anything to prove just her position or situation, I would not hold that against someone in that situation because at a certain, like you said, at a certain point, uh, lizard part of our brain kicks in and you're like, I would rather watch this other person be tortured than as long as it's not happening to me. I mean, just, just so much there. June 20th, 1988, Gary's trial begins. He has a jury of uh, six white, six black members. Gary Heidnick's defense tries to paint him as insane, but witnesses like his financial advisor describe Gary as highly intelligent and astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing. So after a 10-day trial, the jury spent 16 hours deliberating. On June 30th, Gary is found guilty of the murders of Deborah and Sandy, along with 18 other charges. That's when he is sentenced to death. So during trial, Gary went out of his way to appear like a certain way. He wore a buckskin jacket with fringe and a Hawaiian shirt to trial. Oh, so he's trying to look like goofy and quirky and like this guy's just out of control, man. At times, he appeared to be drooling. Oh, my God. However, Gary's actions... Uh, show that he was fully aware of what he was doing as he went to great lengths to cover up the crimes and not get caught. Later, Gary's attorney, Chuck Peruto, admitted to trying to make Gary look insane and coaxing him to dress and act the part. As, you know, as his defense attorney. He was like, absolutely, I told him to do that shit. So minor outbursts, just kind of acting like this is no big deal, not, not being serious about it. But I, I think it comes down to what you say, the, um, the, um, all the stuff he did to cover his tracks and from you know, months on end, have these women captive. A lot goes into taking care of your captives, even if you're not doing a great job of it, right? You got to feed them. You got to make sure, you know, about uh, getting them what little bit of uh, food and water you can get them. So, yeah, I, I don't know. He's definitely disturbed. Because no one, no normal person would do this. But uh, I think at the same time, he, he showed competency. Well, a neighbor named Doris Zabuka noted the difference in Gary's. She said the Gary she knew from the neighborhood was usually like neatly dressed, even if he was in dirty clothes. And that the attire he wore in court was nothing she'd ever seen before. She said it was obvious that Gary was trying to make himself look like Charles Manson. And that's a quote that she said he looked like Charles Manson. There you go. In January of 1989, Gary tries to overdose on Thorazine. But an execution day is finally set for 1997. Gary's daughter, Maxine Davidson, whom he's never met, and his ex-wife, Betty, file a stay of execution on his behalf. Both women say Gary is too mentally incompetent to be executed. The women spend two years fighting Gary's ex execution, but he is finally declared competent, and on July 6th of 1999, he was given a lethal injection. Yeah, they got his ass. So, of course, the question is, for a lot of folks, what was Gary's mental state of mind? I mean, as you mentioned, Dylan, he seems like he's a very highly disturbed person. Yeah, definitely disturbed. But... Was he mentally competent? I mean, in some ways, you've got multiple people saying that Gary has been faking mental illness his whole life, that he's highly intelligent. He knows how to manipulate the system, the tests, if you will, and has used that to his advantage almost, getting the full disability, whatever. But at the same time, he's obviously 
got some fucking problems because who who concocts this plan? Who does this shit? No, I mean, the plan is uh, makes no sense. It's insane. And uh, definitely, I think that... But what it boils down to is, did he know what he was doing was right or wrong when he did did the actions? Don't you think that's the basic bottom line of uh, what we, you know, the word competency yes. thrown around in court? He certainly covered uh, up his tracks. He tried to hide what he was doing. He didn't have some kind of break from reality and an outburst and hurt someone or murder someone and just sat down you know, covered in blood right there and, and, and is discovered by someone or call the cops, please come get me. I don't know what I've done. So, I mean, I, he's he's a disturbed individual. And this is a long-term crime. It, I mean, yes. he's committed to kidnapping these women, impregnating them, delivering the babies at home, I'm guessing, right? And Had then, to. And then raising the children and keeping these women in the house for, what, the rest of their lives? <laughs> I mean, the logistics of caring for them, what little care he did do for them, and, and still trying to, you know, have your normal everyday life, <laughs> making good-ass investment decisions, that's typically not something people who are out of their mind or have breaks from reality do. I don't know. What do you think about Gary? I kind of think Gary's a faker. I, I think he may have faked. I think he, uh, yeah, I think he's a monster. I think he's a monster. I think he definitely has some problems, but I don't think that he's like schizophrenic and I don't think that he has a schizoid personality disorder. I think that stuff's faked. And that's just my opinion. I mean, who am I? But yeah. Well, today's resources, Dylan, I used a book by Ken Inglade called Seller of Horror. And it is very well researched, a very good book, uh, lengthy. I mean, this honestly could have probably ended up being like a two-part series on Gary. was trying to condense it down. Also, a resource is The Basement by R.J. Parker. Uh, the Basement's true story of serial killer Gary Heidnick. Jeez. And then there are numerous newspaper articles out there because this was a more recent case. I mean, it's in the last 40 years, so... Was, it was not too difficult to find information about Gary Heidnick. Now, why he is not a uh, like a more popular or well-known serial killer, I don't know. This guy's a fucking monster. I, I mean, with a story like that, I, I can't I can't imagine that. Uh, I figure I would have already heard, you know, ten documentaries on it and a hundred podcasts about it. But honestly, I'd not heard of it at all. So I'm very surprised by that because it's just a horrible story, and he was a horrible person. But uh, yeah, so if uh, if you love us and want to get more, you can check us out at Patreon slash dot com at Mountain Murders <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> okay, well that's not exactly correct. It's Patreon dot com slash Mountain Murders Podcast. That's what I said. Okay, we got a lot of bonus content. Over there, if you want to access more episodes, they're not all true crime. We actually just posted um, an episode this past week on Patreon, Dylan, about some uh, different cryptids and uh, legends. That was fun. Sometimes we're just talking. We're just we're just having a cup of coffee, just having a little coffee talk. Yeah, we do all sorts of things on Patreon. Um, you can also get ad-free episodes and an invite to our Discord chat, which is so much fun. It's like a group of friends. Love everybody in Discord. You can also hit subscribe uh, wherever you download our podcast and give us a five-star review. We love those. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Just look for Mountain Murders Podcast. 
Wow. I think she said all the things. And uh, I hope everyone has a great day when they hear this. Yeah. We're also toying with the idea we want to do more videos. And we've had some folks reach out, why are you not doing a virtual live show? We want to see videos. We want to see you guys. I have no idea why you physically want to look at us. Oh, my God. We're not the most attractive people. Oh, my God. I mean, Dylan's cute. I need a wide-angle lens. I just look stupid. But we are uh, considering we want to start doing more video and, and possibly posting those on YouTube. So that is something that will be in our future, Dylan. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, sometimes gets lost in the sauce. We do have a YouTube channel, Mountain Murders Podcast, and you can click over there, and uh, that's definitely going to be more videos there. And if you would, just hit a little subscribe right there. That helps us out on the old YouTubes. It sure does. Well, until Wednesday, hope you guys have a safe and wonderful week. Enjoy this gorgeous fall weather that we're having, wherever you are. I'm sure you're getting little hints of fall. Ooh, stay dry. And we'll be back on Wednesday with what, Dylan? A brand new... Mountain Murders Offbeat. That's right. Okay, so like I said, guys, have a great week, and we'll be back soon.